Amen. <clears throat> Thanks, Carrie. You can be seated. Well, if we hadn't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Adam Koontz. I'm one of the student pastors on staff here and excited to share God's Word with you this morning. Um, our girls love to read at home. They have a pretty big library. One book in particular I want to point out to you for parents with young kids. Um, it's called The Garden, The Curtain, and The Cross, and it was absurd. My girls charged me $13.99 to check this book out. And I asked if they took credit, and they like gave me their own fake debit card, and so that was kind of generous of them. But gas prices, you guys know how it is. Um, but this book was really, uh, it's one that they, they love. They refer to it often. It's got one phrase in this book as it talks about creation, the temple, and the veil, and Jesus. It has one phrase that keeps recurring throughout the story, and the phrase is, because of your sin, you can't come in. It echoes that in the garden with Adam and Eve, because of your sin, you can't come in. Well, God still wanted to be in relationship with His people, so God had them build a temple, and that's where God dwelled. And then there was this truly wonderful place, as the book would put it, or what we know as the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place, and that's the spot where God dwells. But there's a curtain there, a veil, and because of your sin, you know what it is, you can't come in. Because of your sin, you can't come in. But then Jesus enters the scene, and He lives on this earth, and He goes to the temple even, and experiences His life, His ministry, and he's, He sees the sin in the world, and He sees the ramifications of the sin, and that sin eventually takes him to the cross. And that cross is where, when Jesus is placed on the cross, is when the, the curtain tears open. And it's not because of our sin we can't come in anymore. It's that because of our sin, Jesus died, and now we can have a relationship with God. And I pointed out this book for you parents, because this is, I mean, we don't, we don't talk often about the temple, but this book was a great, accurate picture of the realities of sin and the necessity of Jesus because of our sin. And so this also, this story is where we are going in our passage in Luke. And so in your copies of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 56. As you're turning there, I do want us to kind of paint a picture, though, of the temple and we're going to talk a little bit about that before we actually dive into the passage. So as you're turning there, Herod's temple began being constructed around 20 to 19 BC during the 18th year of King Herod's reign. It took a decade just to build the main phase of this temple. There were um, a number of sections and rooms in this temple, and the temple was 172 feet long and wide, and it was about 16 to 20 stories tall. Some of the rooms that would be in the temple um, was like an upper chamber, which is above the sanctuary. There was a, a holy place, which was, had a lamp and a table for the bread of presence and the altar of incense. And that was the room where Zechariah was in chapter 1, verse 11, when the angel of the Lord appeared on the right side of him. There's an inner sanctuary 
And it was surrounded by three walls and three stories of chambers containing 38 cells uh, that housed supplies and vessels for ritual ceremonies. And then there was the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And once once a year, the Day of Atonement would happen. This is where the high priest would enter into the most holy place and would offer incense and sprinkle blood. Separating the most holy place and the holy place was the veil. This is the curtain that tore when Jesus dies. It's noted in other gospel accounts that this veil tears from top to bottom. The temple is the place where God, God's presence dwelled. Sacrifices were made here. People came from all over to worship, to hear teaching, to, to uh, just even look at these the diagrams and the makeup of these temples was staggering to me. And there wasn't just the, the temple, there was also a temple complex, which was like the outer side of this. It was also very, very big. There was an outer courtyard that would house or just like be capable of holding 6,000 worshipers at one time. Women could go to this temple court, but not any further than the outer courtyard. This was the area where Jesus as an infant was met by Simeon and Anna the prophetess in chapter 2 of Luke's gospel. So with that information about the temple, we're going to be in Luke 23, 44 through 56. This is a reading from God's word. It says this, It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had, who had not agreed with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the truths that we find in it, and um, God, we, we ask that you would give us understanding of what we've read, and God, that you would take the truths that we uncover here and press them deeply into our hearts, Lord. May we walk away with assurance of the necessity of Jesus' death and what that means for us today, Lord. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So before we go further, I want to kind of present with us the main, main idea, the landing point by which we're going to be looking at the, the text, and it's, it's this, that Jesus Christ 
truly died so that sinners with faith in Christ will truly live. Jesus Christ truly died so that sinners with faith in Christ will truly live. If you remember at the very beginning of the gospel account, I know we're in week 80 of this series, but remember week one. We met a man named Theophilus. Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus, and Luke is wishing that Theophilus would have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught, that he may walk with assurance. In today's message, I don't have any application pieces for us to go home with. There's truly nothing for us to take home and to do when we go home. So I don't have application pieces, but what I do have is a great number of assurances that we have when it comes to the death of Jesus Christ. We've been looking at this timeline chart that's kind of helping us see where we're at in the big picture story. And um, this has kind of been a slow crawl for us because we talk about it each week. But this is what's been unfolding here lately has been all happening in one day. And it's been so incredibly fast. And so this is where we're at in the story with the crucifixion and the burial. But I want us to kind of turn our, our attention towards the top of the passage. Um, verse 44 and 45, it says this. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. So the irony here is that we see is that Jesus comes into our world, the light of the world, came to us, lived perfectly and obediently for those engulfed in darkness, and is now himself engulfed in darkness. For this darkness to come over the land at noon is remarkable, and more than that, a miracle. This was reported in Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts as well, and some would argue that maybe this was just an eclipse that happened. Maybe it was just right at the right timing that an eclipse happened. just so happens to be that Jesus was also in his last moments. But that could not be the case because eclipses don't happen for hours at a time. They happen for minutes. And it was Passover. And Passover coincides with a full moon. And this darkness was not just a random act of nature, but rather a darkness that was initiated and attributed to the sovereign intervention of God. The darkness is a sign and symbol for many things like evil, God's divine judgment, and another being a sign of grief. I want to point us to Amos chapter 8. It's a prophecy from God. It says, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. I mean, this moment was captured in the prophecy of Amos chapter 8. This wasn't just a happenstance, though it just kind of worked out that way. It was like this was, we knew this was going to happen. The last portion of verse 45, we're going to talk about the veil, the curtain. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. This specific curtain was mentioned, uh, that was mentioned as a massive, finely woven curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place. And this curtain was long, 
It was as thick as a man's hand, and the only way it could be torn from top to bottom was by supernatural act. It would be around 25 foot tall. And this, just these, this one sentence, two verses in, we already are experiencing two miracles of God's intervention into this moment. The darkness at noon for three hours and the tearing of the veil. Again, this veil was woven with expensive yarns from Babylon of blue, white, red, purple with representations of the cherubim. And the curtain protecting you from the holiness of God. The high priest would enter the most holy place one time a year, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. This would be the day the high priest would offer incense and sprinkle blood on behalf of the people for their sins. Think about the high priest in that very moment where the veil tears. This curtain is serious. It's important. Only a select few have seen behind the curtain and lived. He had to be there about to take his lunch break and the curtain tears. The high priest coming in for the evening shift is about to walk in. Hey, uh, before you go in, I have to tell you something kind of important. Uh, The curtain tore. (laughs) Oh, no big deal. There was a tear in the curtain. We'll have someone come and sew it up right away. No big deal. No, no, no. You don't understand. Like the curtain tore. There was one curtain, now it tore, now there's two curtains. What do you mean, it tore? Did you bring your extension ladder? Let's fix this thing. No, you don't don't get it. We saw behind the curtain and we lived. We're not needed anymore. Go home. Like this is serious stuff that happens like when the veil was torn, there's no need For the priest, this is massive. Like the old covenant, the priesthood, the temple, it's all coming to an end because Jesus, because he truly died. And the payment for sins was satisfied. Jesus is now our great high priest. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. In Hebrews chapter 6, it also says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. There's no longer a need for priesthood. And notice, the darkness falls and the veil tears in the same sentence. Luke is tying in the sun's failing to the temple veil tearing. And again, it wasn't a weird happenstance. that This was all the Lord's doing. God was behind it all. And the unfolding here is all tied to the verse to come, verse 46. Look at it with me. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. Jesus quotes Psalm 31, 5. 
That's the passage we open up our service with. He changes the tense from I will entrust my spirit to I entrust my spirit, bringing an urgency and an immediacy to the passage. Robert Karras comments on this prayer from Jesus. He says this, Instead of trying to save himself, Jesus gave himself trustingly into the hands of his Father. In this way, he was saved from the hands of the enemies. And in this way, he proved himself to be the righteous one and the Son of God. That even in Jesus' dying, he's proving himself to be king. I think it's fascinating to point out that Jesus wasn't struggling to save himself. You know, on the cross, he wasn't trying to get off of it. He was accepting. He was calm and entrusting to God. That Jesus gave himself fully to God, who is sovereignly working and weaving this grand redemptive story into a beautiful symphony. And then, we know this, the king dies. Jesus truly died. And I don't want to just move past that truth. And I know for many of us, we've had a moment of divine clarity when you experience God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There was a, a presentation you probably followed where you understood and, and heard that Jesus died for your sins. And that's true. But I don't want us to move past that because we know that the resurrection's coming. We need to sit here in this moment and understand that Jesus' death was crucial and it was necessary for us. Jesus Christ truly died. He was lifeless for days in the tomb. And there are many theories floating around out there reasoning how Jesus could have possibly resurrected, trying to put logic to all this, and it discounts the fact that Jesus actually died. So for people trying to reason it, like, well, maybe it wasn't like a physical resurrection. Maybe it was a spiritual resurrection. So there's a, a spiritual resurrection theory where it wasn't a physical, but it was spiritual and it was symbolic. I mean, can you really see the disciples getting, getting together and saying, let's just say he resurrected spiritually. You know, it'll cost us our life, but it'll be a good gesture. There's also the stolen body theory. That the disciples actually came and stole Jesus' body while the guards were asleep. Let's think about this for a second. The stone was about one and a half tons. There were 16 Roman guards trained to defend six men with hand-to-hand combat. If one Roman guard fell asleep on their shift, they would all be executed. And then they'd be lit on fire. They were highly motivated not to fall asleep. And the disciples weren't going to just all of a sudden take on Rome's elite. They were actually hiding. There's one that you're probably more familiar with is the swoon theory. Roman soldiers who were experts in crucifixion actually made a huge mistake. Jesus looked dead, but he wasn't actually dead. He just fell into a deep sleep. And so Jesus, while being carried into the tomb, woke up, hobbled over to the stone, moved that pesky thing out of the way, and escaped Rome's elite. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need Jesus' death to be true. We need to allow ourselves to sit in that, that Jesus actually died. 
Where there is sin, blood is required for the payment for that sin. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is forgiveness of sins. If Christ had only suffered on the cross and had not died on the cross, our sins would not be atoned for. Suffering would not be enough for the payment of sin. And if we don't believe that Jesus truly died, then we would also deny the resurrection because for a resurrection to happen, there would need to be a death. Without the death of Jesus, we would still be under the weight of our sin, waiting to be paid, a debt outstanding towards a holy God. J.C. Ryle, who is uh, the person I quote every time I preach in the Gospel of Luke, he says this about the indisputable fact of the death of Jesus. Forever let us bless God that our great Redeemer's death is a fact beyond all dispute. The centurion who stood by the cross, the friends who took out the nails and laid the body in the grave, the women who stood by and beheld, the priest who sealed up the grave, the soldiers who guarded the tomb, all, all are witnesses that Jesus actually was dead. And he goes on to say why this is something for us to celebrate. He goes on, he says this, the great sacrifice was really offered. The life of the lamb was actually taken away. The penalty due to sin has actually been discharged by our divine substitute. Sinners believing in Jesus may hope and not be afraid. In themselves they are guilty, but Christ hath died for the ungodly, and their debt is now completely paid. Praise God. Let's focus in on the centurion, the crowds, and the beheld. Verses 47 through 49, it says, When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chest. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. And do you notice the different reactions that are there at the cross? They're all witnessing and looking at the same thing, yet different reactions. The centurion has a moment where he sees the physical reality that's taken place along with the spiritual implications of what that actually means. He proclaims, this man really was righteous. The crowds that were gathered, it reads to me like a a car accident happened right outside your home and everyone's kind of gathering around trying to see what everyone saw and what they heard. But they go home, striking their chest. And then you have those that beheld the moment, those that knew him, and they stood at a distance, watching it all unfold. I mean, can we feel the gravity of the text? That Jesus actually died. And you have a centurion proclaiming the innocence. The crowds beating themselves up and the inner circle are just taking it in from a distance. Luke even singles out the women in this verse because they held Jesus with such reverence and they play an important role in what's to come in the resurrection. The mention of the centurion is truly fascinating. What role did he play in Jesus' crucifixion? 
Did he pin Jesus to the cross? Was he the one that raised the hammer, held the nails? He played a part, but we don't know what. But what we do know was that the transformation and heart change took place. That he was at one time hostile to God and now is declaring and proclaiming the lordship of Jesus. Now I want to look at the public step of Joseph, verses 50 through 53. There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. Just the, the act of approaching Pilate and asking for the body of a dead man took some serious audacity. Ordinarily, the Romans would leave the bodies of their victims to rot upon the cross. And Joseph seemed to have been a silent follower for this whole time, but now he's reached his tipping point. You can't get more public than asking for, transporting, caring for, and preparing the dead body of Jesus and placing him in his own tomb. But this act from Joseph was a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 53, 8-10. It says that he was taken away because of oppression and judgment. Who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of many people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death, because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Since Jesus died for the sake of others, it is only fitting that he would be laid in someone else's tomb. Maximus of Turin was taken back by this, and he says this about Jesus. He says, let's see why they placed our Savior in someone else's tomb. They placed him in another person's grave because he died for the salvation of others. Death did not just happen to him, but it benefited us. Why should he have his own grave? Now let's look at the women, verses 54 through 56. It was the preparation day. And the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. I love this sweet ending to our passage. The disciples aren't here, but Joseph starts to take his faith from private to public. And the women are very present and near to the cross. They didn't leave, but they just took in what happened. They've been longtime supporters throughout Jesus' ministry. And they wanted to honor Jesus, much like Joseph, making sure that he was getting the burial that he would deserve, one with dignity and honor. They prepared all the necessary things before the Sabbath started. And then they rested, keeping the commandment. And if there was a day that you would consider skipping a Sabbath observance, it would probably be be this one. I mean, you just went through an emotional, physical, spiritual cyclone. 
But this wasn't the case here for Joseph or for these women. This was the example of Jesus. It's incredibly challenging for us today that we would cease from our works. They don't earn us a better seat in heaven. That we rest fully knowing that the death of Jesus was the death blow to sin. That it's worth celebration. Jesus Christ truly died so that sinners with faith in Christ will truly live. Now again, I have zero application points for us today. There's nothing for us to go home and do because the final work has already been done on the cross. But what we can walk away with, though, is some points of assurance, knowing that in Christ, because of Jesus' death, that he truly died, we can have assurance that we have full access to God. The tearing of the veil was the death to sacrifices. Jesus was the last offering for the payment of sin. And I want that to sink in, that Jesus was the last offering for the payment of sin. No more lambs needed to be slain for Passover. No more goats needed to be offered on the Day of Atonement. No more blood needed to be sprinkled on the mercy seat. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, has given himself to be the final and sufficient sacrifice for sin. And when Jesus was crucified, the age of animal sacrifices ended forever. God showed this by the finality of the tearing of the veil. There were priests who later tried to re-sew the curtain back together, but there was no going back now. God made a way that could be entered only through the blood and perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we could be assured of this, that full access to God means that we can go to God with our every need. We can approach the throne boldly. Hebrews 10.22 says that we can draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Jesus, in his death, has opened the way for us to be close to God. Praise the Lord. The second assurance piece I want to give us is that the sin of all humanity was paid in full. The sin of all humanity was paid in full. Again, it wasn't enough if Jesus were to just suffer on the cross. If the wages of sin is death, then the sins of all humanity are paid for fully and finally in the death of Jesus on the cross. So, brother and sister in Christ, you need not fear payment that your sin brings because it has been paid for and it was sufficient and enough. There's nothing for you to go back home and do because the ultimate satisfying work has been done and it was good and it satisfied God. Last piece of assurance, we can rest fully. The Sabbath was approaching and it was preparation day as the text mentions. Jesus has died and is buried in a borrowed tomb and the time to rest was approaching. I love how Luke included this in the passage. It was no coincidence that the day to rest is soon after the death of Jesus. Literally, on the cross, six hours, immediate rest. This was purposeful, resting fully and deeply in the death of Jesus. 
Resting in the finished work of Jesus is something that I have personally struggled with. If left unchecked in my life, I can tend to carry and develop a certain level of arrogance towards my sin. And what I mean by that is that I would see that, yeah, Jesus paid for everyone else's sin, but my sin just seemed to be way too much for Christ's death. As if my sin was above, whatever that means. Like, I would just carry around this unhealthy mode. I would operate out of this lie that my sin would actually stunt the growth of God's work. And that's not true. Christ's death was enough for you, and you can rest fully in that. You don't have to repay for your sins. God didn't just lay his, the fullness of his wrath on Jesus and just leave a little bit in reserves for you and your sin. It was placed fully and finally on Jesus, and it satisfied him. Carrying around the lie that my sin stumps the growth of the ministry and the people that God's entrusted to me caused me to believe that I must do, I must accomplish, I must appear, I must check the boxes. And you can see how this would start to play itself out and take me down a road that would lead to a works-based type of faith. Not resting fully and deeply in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. I captured this. Your efforts... Your present day sacrifices, your attempts at measuring up are works that are trampling and stomping on the blood that was spilled out for you. Stop trying to pay for your sins again as if Jesus' final payment wasn't enough. Like Jesus shortchanged you on your behalf. So when you're confronted with your sin through the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit, what you do with that sin is not try to pay for it again. You repent and you declare and confess your sin to God and the people of God. Turn from that sin and rest knowing that that sin was paid for, not by you, but by Jesus, and he did so willingly so that we, we may live in newness of life. Much like Sabbath rest, we work from a place of rest, not rest from constantly working. The byproduct of resting fully and deeply in Jesus' death on the cross is praise. How can our heart not long to worship and praise knowing that there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus? How can we hear about our sins being paid for fully and finally and not proclaiming all hail King Jesus? All hail the Lord of heaven and earth. Oh, praise the name. Praise the name of the Lord our God. Praise His name forever. So we're going to enter into a time of response through worship and I want to prime our hearts for the words that we're going to sing of all hail King Jesus. Take this in as a church and we will stand and proclaim this together with one voice. It says, There was a moment when the lights went out, when death had claimed its victory. The King of love had given up his life, the darkest day in history. 
There on a cross they made for sinners. For every curse his blood atoned. One final breath and it was finished. But not the end we could have known. For the earth began to shake and the veil was torn. What sacrifice was made as the heavens roared. All hail King Jesus. All hail the Lord of heaven and earth. All hail King Jesus. All hail the Savior of the world. Let's stand in response and worship.